You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you may listen to this podcast at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. Also, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 271, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Art and Theory of Art, translated by Dorrit Winter and Clifford Venno. This is Lecture 9.5, which means it's the ninth section of the book, but the fifth of eight lectures that are at the end. This book is made up of essays and lectures. It's entitled The Sources of Artistic Imagination and Supra-Sensory Knowledge, Part 2, given in Munich on May 6, 1918. Since ancient times, humanity has felt a certain relationship between suprasensory knowledge and impulses of artistic imagination, of artistic creativity and appreciation. Whoever comes into contact with artists realizes that in widespread artistic circles there is a fear that artistic creativity could be disturbed by approaching those experiences of the suprasensory world out of which artistic imagination receives its impulses as is striven for by spiritual scientific suprasensory knowledge. On the other hand, it is, after all, known in the broadest circles that certain artistic natures, who, with their artistic activity, approach what appears to ray in from suprasensory worlds, experience something like clairvoyance in the context of their creative imaginations. Writers of fairy tales or other artistic individuals who are interested in working with what rays from suprasensory worlds into the sensory world know how the figures they create in their artwork appear, though they are thoroughly spiritual, in such a way that they have the feeling that they are interacting with these artistic figures or that these figures are interacting with each other. Insofar as we maintain complete consciousness, through which, at any time, we can tear ourselves from what comes over us clairvoyantly, spiritual science can also speak of clairvoyance in such a case. We must say there are commonalities between artistic creativity, artistic imagination, and the consciousness that can transport itself knowingly into the spiritual world. Nevertheless, some find it necessary to stress particularly in the face of such spiritual scientific perceptions as are meant here, that the artist should not let himself be robbed of his originality because of what he takes up consciously from the spiritual world. With such a view, one overlooks the essence of the relationship between artistic imagination and clairvoyant vision in the spiritual world. For the clairvoyant vision referred to here is one that develops in an entirely independent way through pure soul activity, independent of physical bodily means. Today I cannot detail how it is possible for the soul to enter the spiritual world free of the body. I simply want to point out that what results as affinity and connection between genuine artistic activity and true genuine clairvoyance interests the anthroposophical spiritual researcher more today than the relationship between clairvoyance and visionary conditions, abnormal conditions, which, although there is the attempt to designate them as clairvoyance, are nevertheless still connected to bodily conditions and do not represent pure soul experiences. But in order to accept the real relationship between artistic imagination and clairvoyance, it is necessary to discuss what, in the strictest sense, differentiates these two from one another, and this is something quite significant. Whoever is active creatively in artistic imagination will not, as is the case in ordinary sensory perception and examination of what is perceived, take up the sensory world and reproduce it in himself. Rather, he will change it, idealize it, or whatever one wants to call it. The orientation does not matter. 
it does not matter whether one takes things up realistically or idealistically, whether one is impressionistic or expressionistic. But in all art, there lives a metamorphosis of what is usually reproduced by the human being from the reality. But in artistic creativity, what can be called perception of the outer world remains alive. The artist abides by the perceptions of the outer world. In his artistic creativity, the conceived images which depend on outer perception and on whatever is connected with it in the memory remain present. Everything the artist has taken up in his life continues to work in his subconscious. And the more that the experiences deposited in the soul work on in the soul, the richer will the artistic product live in the artistic imagination as a connecting link between the personality and the outer sense impressions, the faculties of thought and of memory. That is not the case with what lives in clairvoyance when a person penetrates into the spiritual world through supra-sensory vision. The essential point is that we penetrate into the spiritual world only if we can silence not only the sensory observations but also the inner pictures that flow over into memory. Recollection, memory, the capacity to perceive outer sense impressions must be utterly silent for suprasensory knowledge. It is indeed difficult to clarify for our contemporaries that something like this is possible that the human soul, with its slumbering powers, can really develop such strength that the soul's life can remain fully alert while conceptualization and perception are repressed. For that reason, in the striving for suprasensory knowledge, when it is developed methodically, the objection should not be raised that in the case of willful clairvoyance we are dealing with a repository of memories that surge up out of the subconscious. The essential thing is that whoever wants to penetrate the spiritual world as a spiritual researcher must get to know the method that makes it possible to utterly repress the capacity for memories so that his soul lives only in the present impressions without any reminiscences coming up out of the subconscious so that the soul stands with what it conceives and experiences in a world that it consciously seeks to penetrate and that nothing unconscious remains. If we consider that many mystical, so-called theosophical strivings, contain the longing for all manner of nebulous blurriness, even those who consider themselves adherents will certainly see that this striving is confused with what is meant here by clairvoyance. But this nebulous blurriness is not what we mean here by clairvoyance. There we can see how basically different this clairvoyance is from artistic creativity. They both rest on different states and moods of soul. But whoever strives for suprasensory knowledge in the way it is meant here will have particular experiences with art. First a cardinal question. One cannot be a spiritual researcher from morning till night. Observation in the spiritual world is bound two certain times. One knows the start and finish of the condition in which the soul penetrates the spiritual world. In this condition the soul is capable, through its own forces, of entirely ignoring outer impressions, so that of everything that the outer senses see as colors or hear as tones, nothing remains. It is by means of this looking at the nothingness that the perception of the spiritual world emerges. I would say the seer can blot out everything that penetrates him from the outer world, which surges up into soul consciousness from the ordinary trove of memories. But he cannot blot out, even when he transports himself into this condition, certain impressions that come to him from works of art that stem from true artistic imagination. I do not thereby mean that the seer in this condition has the same impressions of a work of art as the non-seer. These the seer has in moments when he is not seeing in the spirit. 
but in clairvoyant moments he has the possibility of entirely blotting out anything sensory or anything connected with memory as it relates to the outer world. The seer cannot do so, however, with respect to an artwork he encounters. These experiences are specific. It becomes evident that the seer has particular experiences with the individual arts. It is in the details of their effect that such words as art lose their ordinary meaning. The individual arts become richer unto themselves from the perspective of suprasensory knowledge. Architecture becomes different from music, painting, and so forth. But to survey the clairvoyant experience of art, it is necessary to point out that the question must be raised. If the seer must suppress the effects of the outer world and whatever belongs to memory, what does he have left? In the soul there lives of the three soul activities spoken about in the study of the soul, that which is always present in the human soul. Conceptualizing and perception are not present. But feeling and willing are present, though in an entirely different manner than in ordinary life. We really ought not to confuse suprasensory knowledge with the nebulous feeling-like losing of oneself in the spiritual world, which must be designated as mysticism. We must be clear that although suprasensory knowledge springs from feeling and willing, it is different from feeling and willing. In addition, we must take into account that for clairvoyant knowledge, feeling and willing must so fill out the soul that the soul grows still, and that the entire remaining human being finds itself in utter stillness. What must occur is what the human being otherwise does not have in feeling and willing. He must develop feeling and willing completely turned inward. Impulses of will generally develop in outer manifestations. Outer manifestation ought not to occur in clairvoyance. Dervishism and similar practices are in opposition to knowledge of the spiritual world. Insofar as feeling and willing develop inwardly, a light-filled, sharply contoured soul activity springs up, an activity of soul similar to the formation of thoughts. Ordinary thought formations are faded. For the seer, something objective which, however, is not determined or saturated any less by reality than ordinary thinking, springs up out of feeling and willing. It is precisely through experiences of art that we can characterize in detail what the seer experiences in his soul capacities. By attempting to enter into the architectonic forms and relationships of mass, into what the architect has hidden within his buildings, the seer feels connected to these architectural conditions of mass and harmonies, to what develops in the seer as a very different way of thinking from the shadowy thinking of ordinary life. We might add, the seer develops a new thinking that is related to nothing as much as to the forms in which the architect thinks and which he then fashions. The thinking that holds sway in ordinary life has nothing to do with clairvoyance. The thinking that holds sway for the seer includes space in his creative experience. The seer knows that with these forms, which are living forms of thought, he penetrates into the suprasensory reality beyond the sense world, but that he must develop these into thoughts that come to life spatially. The seer perceives that will and emotional feeling are active in everything that comes to life in harmonies of mass and form. He learns to recognize the forces of the world in the relationships of mass and number that imbue all structure as they live in his thoughts. That is why in his thinking he feels related to what the architect designs. In a certain way, in that a new life of feeling, not ordinary consciousness, arises in him he feels related to what the architect and sculptor create in forms. For suprasensory knowledge, an objective intellectuality is born, 
which thinks in spatial forms that curve, that give themselves form through their own lives. These are forms of thought through which the soul of the seer dives down into spiritual reality. One feels these to be related to what lives in the forms of the sculptor. We can characterize the thinking and the new perception of the seer by taking our experiences with architecture and sculpture into account. The seer's experience with music and poetry are very different. Only by penetrating further into the sphere I just described can the seer attain a relationship to music. It is true that at first the new spiritual intellectuality develops out of the inwardly turned feeling and willing. We can penetrate into the spiritual world by having the experience that we penetrate only by means of the soul, which does not make use of the bodily organization. Then the next stage comes. If we did not progress to the next stage, we would penetrate the spiritual world incompletely. It does not consist of developing this intellectual spirituality, but instead of becoming as conscious of spiritual realities outside of the body, as one is conscious of standing in the physical world, standing on the ground with one's feet, grasping objects, and so forth. By beginning to know, think, and perceive in the spiritual world in this way, as I have just described it, we develop a new deep feeling and willing, but it is a willing in the spiritual world that does not come to expression in the sense world. Only by experiencing ourselves in this willing can we have certain experiences of music and poetry. This shows that especially the new emotional feeling experienced outside of the body is related to the suprasensory knowledge that we experience with music. Music is experienced differently in clairvoyant consciousness than in ordinary consciousness. It is experienced in such a way that we feel ourselves united with every single tone, each melody, in such a way that the soul lives in the surging life of tone. The soul is completely connected to the tones. It is as if the soul has flowed out into the surging tones. I can safely say that there is hardly anything that provides as precise a view, as pictorial a view of Aphrodite rising out of the ocean's foam, as the consideration of the way the human soul lives and rises out of the element of music when it is grasped by clairvoyance. And just as Aphrodite, rising above the surface of the ocean, is surrounded by the fluttering creatures of the air, which approach her as messengers of living space, so for the seer does what is poetic join what is musical. By feeling as if his soul were being lifted out of what is musical, while yet feeling as if he were in it, feeling himself to be identical with what is musical, for the seer, the poetic joins what is musical. He experiences this intensively. What he experiences depends on the degree to which he is educated in clairvoyance. Poetry is strange. Through language or by other poetic means, the artist expresses what approaches the clairvoyant capacity out of poetry. For example, a dramatic character presented by a poet who allows him to say few words forms itself out of these few words into a self-contained imagination of a human personality. That is why everything in poetry that is unreal, merely rhetorical, that does not emerge out of creativity but is instead manufactured, makes things so uncomfortable for the seer. In something that is not poetry, yet wants to form something rhetorically, a grotesque caricature arises. While what is sculptural transforms itself for him into spiritual intellectuality, what is poetic changes into something sculptural and representational, which he must look at. He looks at what is true, what is formed out of the true creative laws out of which nature works, and separates these stringently from what is merely made from human conceits. Because one wants to write poetry, 
even if one is not connected in imagination, to the creative forces of the universe. These are the experiences with regard to poetry and music. Suprasensory knowledge experiences painting in a peculiar way. For suprasensory knowledge, painting stands alone. And because the seer, I will use a trivial comparison, like the geometer, is required to work with lines and with the circle in order to make visible and bring onto a surface what he can have only as inner picture, in order to make the inner picture sense perceptible, the seer must change what he experiences as formless in the spiritual world into a formed, dense world. This happens when he lives so intensively into what he experiences in this way that he changes it into inner observation, filling it out in imagination with, if I may use the expression, soul substance. He does this in such a way that in a manner of speaking, in an inner, creative, clairvoyant condition, he creates the counterpart to painting. The painter shapes his imagination in such a way that his inner formative powers are dependent on sense perception, which he experiences as he must experience it. He comes in from outside to the place where he transforms what lives in space in such a way that it acts as lines, forms, and colors. He takes this as far as the surface of painterly observation. The seer approaches from the opposite side. He condenses what is in his clairvoyant activity to the point of soul coloration. He imbues what is otherwise colorless, as if inwardly illustrated with colors. He develops imaginations. We need only imagine in the right way how what the painter accomplishes from the one side is met from the opposite side through what the seer brings about from inside out. In order to imagine this, one ought to read the elementary concepts in the last chapters of Goethe's color theory on the sensory moral effects of color, where he says that every color causes a condition of feeling. This condition of feeling is what the seer receives as the last thing with which he colors what would otherwise be colorless and formless. When the seer speaks of things like the aura and refers to colors related to what he sees, we should be clear that he colors what he experiences inwardly with this condition of feeling. When the seer says that what he sees is red, he experiences what is otherwise experienced when there is red. The experience is the same as when one sees red, but spiritually. What the clairvoyant sees is the same as what the artist conjures up on the canvas, but seen from a different side. This is how the clairvoyant encounters the painter. This encounter is a notable, meaningful experience. It allows painting to appear as a characteristic feature of suprasensory knowledge. This becomes particularly evident in a phenomenon that must become a problem for every soul, the incarnadine, the color of human flesh, which for anyone wanting to penetrate further into such things has something both mysterious and interesting about it, which allows one to see into the depths of natural and spiritual conditions. The seer experiences this incarnadine in a special way. In relation to this, I would like to point out a few things. In speaking of a seer or of clairvoyance, people think that what is meant is something far removed from life, something that only a few bizarre people have. That is not the case. Earnest clairvoyance is always present in life. We would not be able to stand firmly in practical life if we were not clairvoyant for particular things. Much depends on the fact that the earnest seer is not describing something estranged from life, but something that only elevates life in certain directions. When in ordinary life are we clairvoyant? We are clairvoyant in a situation that is so misunderstood today, because all manner of daydreaming has come about through the materialistic view of how we grasp an unfamiliar I, capital, when we encounter an unfamiliar body. 
there are already people today who say only through a subconscious inference do we perceive the soul of another human eye. We see the oval of the face, other human features, the color of the face, the form of the eyes. And when we see something bodily like this, we have become used to finding a human being standing in front of us. That is why we conclude with the analogy that such a form harbors a human being. But suprasensory knowledge shows us that this is not the case. What appears to us in the human form and coloration is a type of perception, as is the perception of color and form in a crystal. Color, form, and surface in a crystal arise as themselves. Surface and coloration in the human being lift themselves up, make themselves transparent in a spiritual sense. The sensory perception of the other human being extinguishes itself spiritually. We perceive the other soul directly. It is a direct transferring of oneself into the other soul, a mysterious, wonderful process in the soul, when we face the other person out of our own human nature. What happens there is a real stepping forth of the soul, a stepping over toward the other. This is a clairvoyance that is always and everywhere present in life. This type of clairvoyance is intimately connected with the secret of the incarnadine. The seer becomes aware of this when he confronts the most difficult problem of clairvoyance, to perceive the incarnadine clairvoyantly. For ordinary perception, incarnadine has something calm about it. For the seer it becomes something that actively moves. The seer does not perceive the incarnadine as something finished, but as the intermediary condition between two others. If the seer concentrates on the coloration of the human being, then he perceives a continual oscillation, a blanching and a sort of blushing, which is a higher blushing than normal blushing, and which, for the seer, moves into a sort of radiation of warmth. These are the two boundary conditions between which the coloration of the human being swings and in which incarnadine exists. This becomes a vibration back and forth for the seer. Through blanching, the seer understands how the human being inwardly is in his feeling and intellect. Through blushing, he recognizes what the human being is like as will impulse, how he is in relation to the outer world. What vibrates is mostly what is in the inner character of the human being. We ought not to imagine that clairvoyance consists in, in quotes, developing ourselves and then seeing all people and things spiritually. The path into the spiritual world is a polymorphous, complicated path. The experience of incarnadine is the main problem when it comes to arriving at the inner nature of the other human being. So, you see that the seer has the most varied experiences in the arts. What is meant here is further nuanced through a phenomenon that is suited to indicate the way clairvoyance stands in life, the relationship between clairvoyance and human speech. Actually, speech is not something unified. Rather, it is something that lives in three different spheres. First, we have a condition of speech that allows it to be viewed as a tool for comprehending people and science. We might call what the seer feels there paradoxical, but it is a real experience. The seer experiences this way of using speech for comprehension and ordinary cognitive science as a sort of dampening of language, even a degradation of language, into something that in its innermost nature speech is not. Clairvoyance arrives at a different understanding. Language is that instrument through which a nationality lives in commonality. When viewed correctly, what lives in speech, in that it is structured into different forms, nuances of speech sounds, and so forth, is something artistic. Language as an expression of the folk soul is art, and the way the language is worked with creatively is a common creative activity of the people who speak this language. 
By using language as an everyday means of comprehension, one degrades it. Whoever has a perception for what lives in language and reveals itself in our subconscious knows that what is creative in speech is related to poetry, to art in general. Whoever has an artistic nature has an unpleasant feeling when language is unnecessarily degraded in the sphere of ordinary comprehension. Christian Morgenstern had this feeling. He was not afraid of bridging artistry with clairvoyance. He did not harbor the belief that artistic originality would be lost through the penetration into the spiritual world. He felt that what was poetic in himself was related to what is sculptural, architectural, He expressed what he felt in language, characterizing chatter as the misuse of language when he said, The basis of all chatter is ignorance of the meaning and value of the individual word. For the chatterer, language is something obscured, but it gives him a modest return, the obscurer, the obscured. One has to appreciate what Morgenstern felt as the creativity in language so as to feel, as he did, that when language as prose becomes a means for comprehension, it results in its degradation into mere utilitarianism. The third characteristic of the seer's experience with speech is what is experienced in the spiritual world. What is looked at there is not looked at in words. It does not express itself directly in words. This makes an understanding with the outer world difficult for the seer, because most people think theoretically and in terms of the content of words and cannot imagine a life of the soul that goes beyond words. That is why someone who perceives in the spiritual world feels a certain compulsion to pour into the already formed language what he has experienced. But by silencing what normally lives in language, namely the capacity of ideation and memory, he can activate in himself forces of creative speech, those creative forces which were at work when speech originated. The seer must put himself into the mood of soul from which speech first originated, must develop the dual activity of inwardly forming what he has seen spiritually and of diving into the spirit of creative speech, so that he can connect these two with one another. That is why it is important to understand that we must take up the words of a seer differently from other words. Insofar as the seer communicates, he is obliged to use language, but in such a way that he lets what is creative in language arise again through his use of what has pictorial power in language. Thus it becomes important for him to form the spoken word by emphasizing some things more than others, saying some things first and others later, or by setting something aside as an example. A special technique is necessary for someone who wants to recast spiritual truths into language, who wants to bring to expression what lives inwardly in him. That is why it is necessary for the seer to pay attention to the how of what he expresses not just what he says. It is important that he first forms what he wants to say. How he says things is important, especially things about the spiritual world, not just what he says. The seer is understood with such difficulty because so little consideration is given to this and because people think of the ordinary meanings of words when they hear them. It is therefore necessary for him, all of this is relative, to develop the capacity for creative speech so that he expresses the supersensory in the very way he expresses himself. It will become ever more necessary to clarify. It is not the content that is important in what is said. What is important is that when the seer expresses himself, we have the living impression that he is speaking out of the spiritual world. In this way, language itself is already an artistic element in ordinary life. The seer has a special relationship to language as well. Now the question arises, what is the basis for this special connection between the seer and the artist? 
Why is it that the seer basically cannot ignore the impression a work of art makes on him? It is because something arises in the work of art that has a relationship to suprasensory knowledge, but in a different guise. This is because the inner life of the human being is far more complicated than what today's science can imagine. Let me approach this from a different side, in which it may indeed seem as if scientific language is spoken, and which indicates something that must be ever more developed so as to bridge ordinary observation of reality, on the one hand, and the experience of artistic imagination and supersensory knowledge, on the other. Let me ask, how is it possible for the creative musician to produce from within himself what lives in his tones? We must be clear that what is called ordinary self-knowledge here is still abstract. Even what the mystics or the nebulous theosophists imagine in this regard is very abstract. If we believe we experience the divine in our soul, that is completely vague and nebulous in contrast to real, concrete clairvoyance. What becomes clear is that the human being has, on the one side, his inner experiences, his thoughts, feelings, and will impulses. He can sink into them and cause this mysticism or philosophy or science. If we learn to recognize what is alive, then we know that all of this is too thin, even if we try to make it denser inwardly. Even with intensive mysticism, we always hover above reality. We do not really get to true reality. We experience only inner copies, effects of reality. And we also do not experience reality through ordinary observation of nature, which confronts material processes. What Dubois-Raymond says is true. Observation of nature will never grasp what haunts in space. When the natural scientist talks about matter that is out there in space, the reality we try to grasp is not entailed. For ordinary consciousness, what prevails is that, on the one hand, we have the inner life that does not penetrate reality, and on the other hand, the outer reality that does not reveal the inner life. Between these there is an abyss, this abyss which one must know, is an impediment for human knowledge. It is overcome in no other way than by developing the suprasensory clairvoyance in the soul, a clairvoyance, as I have described it today, in relation to the artistic element. When this clairvoyance develops, we step into an outer relationship to ourselves and the material reality that is present as the body. The body becomes something new, does not remain brittle and inwardly ungiving. What is inner does not continue to hover above reality, but rather it impregnates itself, permeates itself in its own bodily aspect with what has material existence in the body. But all material existence contains spiritual existence. Let us try to consider this in conjunction with the art of music. While the human being develops musical or other ideas and perceives in ordinary consciousness, complicated conditions arise in the interior of his body. He is unaware of these, but they take place. Clairvoyant consciousness penetrates to this inner, complicated, wonderful bodily experience. The cerebrospinal fluid in which the brain is embedded pours itself out into the spinal cord tissue during exhalation, penetrates down, thrusts the blood to the abdominal veins. During inhalation, everything is thrust upward. A wonderful rhythm accompanies everything we think and perceive. This breathing, this rhythmical dynamic, penetrates into and out of the brain. A process takes place that accompanies human experience. It happens in the subconscious and is known to the soul. Current physiology and biology are still almost completely ignorant of these things, but it will become a widespread science. In times different from our own, one had to seek spiritual life in a different manner. 
that the time for seeking spiritual life in an Eastern Indian way has passed. That can be studied later, but the belief that one must return to Indian methods is completely wrong. That is not for our time. It would mislead humanity. Our methods are much more intellectual. Nevertheless, we may study what it was that ancient India sought. In ancient India, a large part of the schooling to achieve higher knowledge consisted of the rhythmically ordered breathing process. They wanted to regulate the breathing process. If you compare what was sought there with what was just said, you will find that the student of yoga wanted to experience in himself what I just described by inwardly experiencing the stream of the breath. The Indian experienced this by attempting to feel the breathing process that surges up and down. Our methods are different. Whoever follows this with understanding finds that we should no longer live into the organism in this physical way. Instead, we should try to grasp what streams down through a meditative approach of the intellect and what streams up through exercises of the will and in this way try to confront the stream with our soul life and to feel it as it streams up and down. A particular kind of progress in human development is based on this. This is something about which science and everyday consciousness knows nothing, but the soul in its depths knows it. What the soul there knows and experiences can under special circumstances be raised up by consciousness. It is raised up when a human being has an artistic nature as regards music. By what means does this happen? In the ordinary human condition, which one could also call bourgeois, there is a strong connection between the soul spiritual and the physical bodily. The soul spiritual is strongly bound to the aforementioned processes. If the balance is unstable, if the soul spiritual is loosened, then through this construction based on inner destiny, one is musical or musically receptive. This unstable relationship is the basis for special musical talent in other spheres as well. Someone who has this talent is able to bring to the surface what otherwise takes place only in the depths of the soul. For in the depths of the soul we are all musicians. What takes place there cannot be raised to the surface by someone who has a stable balance. He is not an artist. Whoever has an unstable balance, and here one could speak as a scientific Philistine of degeneration, whoever has an unstable balance of soul and body brings to the surface more, whether dark or light, of what is active in the rhythm and forms it through tonal matter. If we observe the stream of nerve waves from below upward toward the brain, we first encounter what we characterize as musical. How the optical nerve spreads in the eye, how it is connected to blood vessels, all of this remains subconscious. What happens there is extinguished when the human being faces nature. By facing the outer sense world, the outer impression is extinguished. But what happens between the nerve waves and the sensory processes, that was always a poet there. A poet lives in every human being. And depending on the balance between soul and body, what takes place there either remains below or is raised to the surface to be transformed into poetry. Let us again consider the radiating process the wave that moves down and collides with the branching of the blood flow. There we have the impression of how our own individual balance impacts the balance of the environment. The subconscious experience is especially strong when the human being rises from being a crawling infant to stepping into upright balance. That is an incredible subconscious experience. That one has what is merely caricatured in the ape what will become significant for humanity, that the line through the middle of the body coincides with the center of gravity line, this is an incredible inner experience. In this way one experiences unconsciously 
the architectural-sculptural relationship. Architecture, sculptural mass, is experienced unconsciously when the nerve wave moving downward encounters the bloodstream. And then it is brought to the surface and brought into form by means of unstable or stable conditions. Painting, and what is brought to expression there, is experienced inwardly, where nerve and blood wave encounter each other. The artistic process is conscious, but the impulses are unconscious. Clairvoyance sinks consciously into what underlies artistic imagination as impulse, as inner experience, which should not be characterized as abstractly as it is today, but instead so concretely that one can find every single phase again in the configuration of one's own body. In the old days, there was a correct perception that with respect to architecture, every form, every mass is present when one places oneself into the outer world. The architecture of antiquity and Gothic architecture stem from different ways of sensing this relationship to mass, but both stem from a sense for the relationship between the conditions of one's own balance and the conditions of the cosmos. Here we recognize that the human being is, in his own structure, a reflection of the macrocosm. That is why one called the body the temple of the soul. A lot of truth is contained in such utterances. So we can say, fundamentally, the artist who is to be taken seriously and who has a relationship to reality creates out of the same sources as those on which the clairvoyant draws. For the clairvoyant, what is to remain as impulse in his working appears in his consciousness, whereas when the impulse remains subconscious, he brings to the surface what the artist makes visible. This shows us that these realms of human experience are strictly separated. That is why the fear of believing that the artist's originality would get lost through clairvoyance is unfounded. Clairvoyance is developed through the same conditions that can be taken from artistic creativity and experience, but the two cannot interfere with each other if they are experienced properly. On the contrary. We stand at a moment in time when humanity must become ever more conscious, ever freer. Therefore that light must be poured out over art by the artist himself, thereby bridging art and clairvoyance, which do not conflict with each other. We can understand that the artist feels disturbed when art theory develops according to patterns of natural science or of the intellectually scientific aesthetic as we know it today. But knowledge that clairvoyantly penetrates real art, such a science, does not yet exist. A time will come when artists will find it not objectionable, but fruitful. Anyone using a microscope knows what needs to be done so that one first learns to see properly, just as one first permeates oneself inwardly with the skill to use a microscope properly, in which case the inner stimulates outer seeing and does not hinder it, so a time will come in which true clairvoyance supportively impregnates, permeates, the artist's basic capacity for production. At times what is meant by clairvoyance is misunderstood, because one thinks of suprasensory science and knowledge too much along the lines of ordinary sensory science and knowledge. People who encounter spiritual science are sometimes disappointed, for they do not find comfortable answers to their homespun questions. Instead, they find other worlds that sometimes contain riddles far deeper than those in the sensory world. An introduction to spiritual science brings up new riddles, which cannot be solved theoretically, but promise to be solved only through life processes and thus engender new riddles. If we then live into this higher life, we remain connected with art. Hebel demanded conflicts that had to remain unsolved. He considered Grillparzer a Philistine, in spite of all the beauty, for creating situations in which conflicts are solved if one is only a little smarter than his hero. That is where true clairvoyance leads. It does not create cheap answers, 
but rather worldviews in addition to what is given through the senses. Certainly profound artists have already felt this. In his recently published book titled Stufen, Morgenstern says anyone really wanting to approach the spiritual, like the artist, must be willing to take up in himself, to unite with himself, what can already now be grasped of the divine spiritual by penetrating supersensory knowledge. He says, quote, whoever wants merely to immerse himself with feeling into what can presently be experienced of the divine spiritual, without seeking to understand it, is like an illiterate person who all his life sleeps with a primer under his pillow. Close quote. This characterizes the point at which we now stand in our culture. If we can take up what our time needs, we will, like Morgenstern, arrive at the impression that we ought not remain illiterate in the face of clairvoyant knowledge. As artists, we must seek connections to clairvoyant knowledge. Just as it is significant when the clairvoyant element sheds light on artistic creativity, so it is also significant when that which, as clairvoyant philistinism, possesses no musicality and is in the highest degree unmusical, lets itself be fructified by artistic taste. For the genuine spiritual scientist of the future, bridging art and clairvoyance is more important than all pathological clairvoyance. Whoever understands this knows that the more that spiritual things and spiritual knowledge are sought, the greater will be the healing and flourishing of humanity in the present and the future. The light of clairvoyance must shine in art so that the warmth and greatness of art may work fruitfully into the breadth and greatness of the horizon of clairvoyance. This is necessary for art that wants to dive down into true existence, as we need it to, so as to master the great tasks that must approach humanity more and more out of uncertain depths. The end of Lecture 9.5